Well, let's today talk about sometimes I'm disappointed with God. Sometimes, just sometimes, I'm disappointed with God. An apostle from North America was meeting with a group of leaders of the underground church in China, and during the evening there was a fellowship time amongst the leaders as they shared what was happening in their lives and how God was moving in their homes and in their ministries. And the apostle from North America took the opportunity to ask a question of these Chinese leaders of underground house churches. He asked, If I were to visit your home communities and talk with the non-believing families, friends, and neighbors of the members of your house churches, and if I would point out your house church member and ask, Who are these people? What can you tell me about them? What answer would I get? And the apostle writes, Many people started to answer at once. The response that jumped out at me, though, was the answer of a man who told me that his church's neighbors would probably say, those are the people who raise the dead. And as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus raised the dead. And these believers just assumed that because Jesus did it, that they too could do it. After all, Jesus was living in them and working through them. In John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, my favorite verses, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The Passion Translation reads the same verses this way. I tell you this timeless truth. The person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles that I do, even greater miracles than these, because I go to, my, to be with my Father. For I will do whatever you ask me to do when you ask me in my name. And that is how the Son will show what the Father is really like and bring glory to him. Ask me anything in my name, and I will do it for you. And then again, a different version, the message version. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things, because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. You can count on it. From now on, whatever you request along the lines of who I am and what I'm doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who he is in the Son. I mean it. Whatever you request in this way, I'll do. You know, sometimes I'm disappointed with God because I believe these verses and I prayed in line with what I see Jesus doing in the Gospels. And from my point of view, a lot of times nothing happens. I prayed overseas to raise the dead a number of times and nothing happened. I pray for the sick. Sometimes they're healed and sometimes they're not. And I don't know why the difference, but I can tell you I am disappointed with God. I read the book of Acts and wonder why the things that happened in the early church don't seem to be happening in this church, the church today. And I'm disappointed. I desperately want to see multitudes saved and I work hard at being a good witness of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love and few respond and fewer become believers. And I'm disappointed. And my list could go on. 
I sometimes am just seriously disappointed with God. The same apostle was in Ukraine, and as his time there was drawing to a close, the believers had been sharing their testimonies and stories of prison, persecution, and God's provision for his people. He writes, Once again, I was struck by the power of their testimonies and stories that I was hearing. As we came to the end of our time together, I asked, I just don't understand why you haven't collected these stories and put them in a book. Believers around the world ought to hear what you have been telling me here today. Your stories are amazing. These are inspiring testimonies. I have never heard anything like them. An older pastor reached out, took my shoulder. He clamped his other hand tightly onto my arm and looked me right in the eye. And he said, Son, when did you stop reading the Bible? All of our stories are in the Bible. God has already written them down. Why would we bother writing books to tell our stories when God has already told his story? If you would just read the Bible, you would see that our stories are there. He paused, and then he asked me again, When did you stop reading your Bible? And without waiting for me to answer, he turned and walked away. There was no friendly smile, no encouraging pat on the back, no kiss on the cheek. His convicting question still echoes in my mind. This older pastor was simply living the faith the way Jesus said we could and should, doing today the things that Jesus did 2,000 plus years ago. For him, it was not something special to write a book about. It was simply normal Christian living. And as we read the Bible, Old and New Testaments, we see God doing amazing things. Releasing his people from prison, like Peter in Acts 5. People being saved in the thousands, like Acts 2. People being baptized in the Holy Spirit with tongues and prophecy, Acts 2. People being healed, the lame beggar in Acts 3. Ananias in Acts 9, Dorcas in Acts 9, believers being bold in the midst of life and death persecution, Acts 4, building shaken in answer to prayer, Acts 4, people dropping dead for lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, miracle signs and wonders also in Acts 5, angels opening prison doors and setting leaders free in Acts 5, People martyred for the faith, Stephen being the first of the martyrs in Acts 7, the Holy Spirit sending Philip and a revival breaking out in Samaria in Acts 8, confronting a powerful sorcerer and seeing multitudes saved in Acts 8, Philip sent by the Spirit bringing new life to the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, God knocking Saul off his horse and speaking audibly to him in Acts 9, the dead being raised, Visions directing believers, Peter on the rooftop having a vision in Acts 10, Ananias receiving a vision and going to Saul to bring healing in Acts 9, churches being planted in Acts 11 and onwards, believers dying for the faith, such as the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus in Acts 12. And the older pastor in Ukraine said to the young apostle, When did you stop reading your Bible? with the point being that the same God who did these things in the early church 
is still working with and through believers today. And reading the stories in the scriptures should build our faith to believe for and walk in the supernatural as part of our regular, daily Christian life. Jesus said, I tell you this timeless truth. The person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles that I do. Even greater miracles than these, because I go to be with my Father, for I will do whatever you ask me to do when you ask me in my name. And that is how the Son will show what the Father is really like and bring glory to Him. Ask me anything in my name and I will do it for you. And sometimes I'm disappointed with God, because this is not happening on a regular basis in my life. And I wonder why. In fact, I do more than wonder why. I want to know why. A true story from Russia. A young father and husband has been arrested for teaching the Bible to others. He had recently been saved, a miracle in itself, and began to read a Bible that he had obtained, a second miracle in communist Russia. He began to teach his wife and children the scriptures, reading them together late at night and discussing them together. And then his wife and children received Jesus. In time, neighbors joined them, and then more neighbors, until the house was full every night, people hungry to hear the word of God, and they got saved. It's like reading a story straight from the book of Acts. He was arrested, just a believer, not a pastor, nor a leader, just a believer, and he moved a thousand kilometers away from his family, and locked up in a prison because he was influencing people for the kingdom. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took him but a single step either to get to the door of his cell, to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted on the opposite wall, or to use foul-smelling open toilet in the far corner of the cell. Even worse, he was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. He said that his isolation from the body of Christ, his house church, was far more difficult than even the physical torture, and there was much of that. Still, his tormentors were unable to break him. Dimitri, not his real name, pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual habits that he had learned and that he took with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his faith would not have survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, and as was his custom, he would face the east, raise his arms and praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. A heart song is a song that he had learned that was very meaningful to him and expressed his heart and his love for the Lord. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food, sometimes they threw human waste, to try to shut him down and extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. There was another disciple too. This is, sorry, there was another discipline too another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell. There he would put out, pull out a stub of a pencil 
or a tiny piece of charcoal that he had saved, and he would write on that scrap of paper as tiny as he could all the Bible verses and scripture stories or songs that he could remember. When the scrap of paper was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of this little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water, except in the wintertime when the moisture became a solid coat of ice on the inside surface of his cell. Dmitri would take the paper fragment, reach as high as he possibly could, and stick it on the damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, whenever one of his jailers spotted the piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into his cell, take it down, read it, beat him severely, and threaten him with death. Still, Dmitri refused to stop his two disciplines. Every day, he rose at dawn to sing his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. They taunted him cruelly. We have ruined your home. Your family is gone. Dmitri's resolve finally broke. He told God that he could not take it anymore. He admitted to his guards, you win, I will sign any confession that you want me to sign. I must get out of here and find where my children are. They told Dimitri, we will prepare your confession tonight and then you will sign it tomorrow. Then you will be free to go. After all those years, the only thing that he had to do was sign his name on a document saying that he was not a believer in Jesus and that he was a paid agent of Western government trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on that dotted line, he would be free to go. Dmitri repeated his intention. Bring it tomorrow. I will sign it. That very night, he sat on his jail, bed, jail cell bed. He was deep in despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. And at that same moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, Dmitri's wife, his children, who were growing up without him, and his brother, sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair of this man in prison. His loved ones gathered around the very place where I was now sitting with Dmitri as Dmitri told me his story. They knelt in a circle and began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dmitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. The next morning, when the guards marched into his cell with the documents, Dmitri's back was straight, his shoulders were squared, and there was strength on his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and declared, I am not signing anything. The guards were incredulous. They had thought that he was beaten and destroyed. What happened, they demanded to know. Dmitri smiled and told them, In the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I now know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that they are all still in Christ. So I am not signing anything. 
His persecutors continued to discourage and silence him. But Dimitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God's hand. In the prison yard, he found a whole sheet of paper. And God, Dimitri said, had laid a pencil right beside it. So Dimitri went on, I rushed back to my jail cell, and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story, and every song I could recall. I knew that it was probably foolish, Dimitri told me, but I couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up and stuck the entire sheet on that wet concrete pillar. Then I stood up and looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could give to Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it. I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. Dimitri was dragged from his cell, and as he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals raised their arms and began to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, Who are you? And Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could, and he responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell, and sometime later Dimitri was released, and he returned to his family. Prisoners being set free by the Lord. You know, like in the New Testament. The apostles were all in prison and set free by an angel in Acts 5. Peter in prison awaiting execution in Jerusalem, Acts 12. Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi, Acts 16. As the old Ukrainian pastor said to the young apostle, when did you stop reading the Bible? What happened then is still happening now. But do I really believe that? Do I really believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And so if I really do believe that, do I act and do I live like it is totally true? But if I can be so bold to ask, why does it happen over there and not happen over here? So you see, sometimes I'm disappointed with God. It seems he's working hard over there and not working much at all over here. And so sometimes I am seriously disappointed with God. You read the Bible and you see so many amazing stories of God moving, God guiding, God directing, God intervening, God touching lives. You read about God intervening in regular life, revealing himself in powerful ways, people being saved, prisoners being set free, those being persecuted, being warned by the spirit of imminent danger. People being openly directed by the Holy Spirit. The sick being healed. Demon-possessed people being set free. The dead being raised to life. Churches being planted. Cities being changed and challenged by the gospel. Jesus appearing to people and directing them. Miracle signs and wonders. Visions and dreams. God directly strengthening and encouraging believers, people dying for their faith, 
having a strong witness to the faith they have in Christ. So I asked myself, why is all of this not happening in my daily life? Is there something I need to change or do differently? Is it just a matter of not having enough faith? Is it because I live in North America? Is there sin in my life that prevents the moving of the Holy Spirit? Do I need to change the way I'm praying? Are my priorities all wrong and just and thus preventing the move of the Spirit? Do I have a wrong worldview? Is there compromise in my life? Do I simply not trust God enough? Maybe I don't really understand the kingdom. Maybe deep inside I don't want my lifestyle to change. Am I simply too comfortable and too safe and too secure and not wanting to be disturbed? Maybe, maybe I'm complicating the faith and making it something it's not. Am I just being disobedient? Or am I so busy that I'm missing the voice of God and the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit? I'm asking myself these questions. So the young apostle who is visiting with the Ukrainian pastors moves on to Central Asia. During my time there, he writes, a 43-year-old Muslim background believer somehow heard through the oral grapevine that a Westerner had come to his country wanting to discover how Muslims were finding Jesus and wanting to see what challenges these converts were experiencing as they lived out their faith in hostile environments. I still have no idea how he learned that I was coming or where I would be. It turns out that Pramana traveled 29 hours to find me. He lived his entire life in a remote, tropical, and rural region of his third world country. He had never before been on a bus. He had not even traveled on a paved highway. Yet somehow he found me in one of his country's major cities. Upon his arrival, he matter-of-factly announced, I have heard about what you are doing. You need to hear my story also. This man had been born into a people group with a population of 24 million. In his people group, there were only three followers of Jesus and no church. The only religion, the only religion that he had ever practiced or known while growing up had been a sort of folk Islam. Pramana knew the Quran by rote. He could actually speak Arabic, so as an oral communicator from an oral culture, he simply memorized the words of the book as if they were part of some sort of magic formula. He knew the story of Mohammed, of course, but he had never heard of anyone called Jesus. He had never met a believer, and he had no idea what a Bible was. Five years ago, he told me, my life was in ruins. <clears throat> my wife and I were always fighting. I was ready to divorce the woman. My children were disrespectful. My animals were not growing or multiplying. My crops were dying in the fields. So I went to, uh, to the Amman of the nearest mosque for help. The Amman, who also functioned as a local spiritualist, told him, okay, son, here is what you need to do. Go buy a white chicken Bring it to me and I will sacrifice it on your behalf. Then go back to your village to meditate and fast for three days and three nights. 
On the third day, you will receive the answer to all the problems that you are having with your wife, your children, your animals, and your crops. Pramana did exactly as he was told. He went back to his village. He meditated. He fasted. He waited. Then, as he explained it, I'll never forget. On that third night, a voice without a body came to me after midnight, and the voice said, Find Jesus. Find the gospel. So this Muslim man had no clue what that even meant. He didn't know if Jesus might be a fruit or a rock or a tree. Pramana told me that the voice without a body also said, Get out of bed, go over the mountain, and walk down to the coast to the city. When you get to that city at daybreak, you will see two men. When you see those men, ask them where such and such a street is. They will show you the way. Walk up and down that street and look for this number. When you find that number, knock on the door. When the door opens, tell the person why you have come. Paramana did not know that it was an option to be disobedient to the voice. He simply assumed that he was required to obey what he had been instructed to do. So he went. He didn't even tell his wife that he was leaving, let alone where he was going. It turns out that he would be gone for two full weeks, and during that time his family had no idea where he was. Pramana simply got out of bed, hiked over the mountain, trekked down the coast, arrived at the specific city, the next morning at daylight he saw two men who told him where to find the street he wanted. He walked up and down that street until he found a building with the right number on it. He knocked at the door. A moment later, an older gentleman opened the door and asked, Can I help you? And the younger man declared, I have come to find Jesus. I have come to find the gospel. In a flash, the old man's hand shot out from the darkened doorway. He grabbed Pramana by the shirt, dragged him into the apartment, slammed the door behind him. The old man released his grip and explained, You Muslims must think I am a fool to fall for a trap as transparent as this. The very startled and confused traveler replied, I don't know if you are a fool or not, sir. I just met you, but here is why I've come. Then Permana told the older man the story of how he had come to be there that day. The Holy Spirit of the Living God had led this young Muslim man through his dream and vision and his obedience to the home of one of the three believers in his 24 million people group. Stunned, the older man explained the gospel to this young Muslim man and led him to Christ. And for the next two weeks, the old man discipled this new convert in the faith. That had been five years ago. Now Pramana had made another journey. This journey was to find me and to tell me his remarkable story. He had traveled 29 hours to share how his life had changed since he had found Jesus. There had been blessings and trials and tribulations during the last five years, but his life had clearly being changed but in startling ways. You know, that sounds so much like the story of Saul of Tarsus finding Ananias to instruct him in the teachings of Jesus as you read about in Acts 9. 
and I read these stories, and sometimes something inside of me starts to cry. There is this hunger for the New Testament times to become real once again in this day and this time, and if I may say so, in my life. There is this desire for the adventure to start in a fresh and new way. There is a deep dissatisfaction right now inside of me that what I have, what I'm experiencing, what I know as Christianity is no longer enough. It's like my spirit is crying out, there has got to be more. Deep inside, there is a divine discontent letting me know that major change has begun for me in my walk with Jesus and in my everyday life. I am seriously sometimes disappointed with God. But it's a good thing because it motivates me to move forward regardless of the cost. It's a good thing. And I have begun to think through what needs to change for me to experience more of God in my life. And my desire is that you will also experience this hunger if you haven't already, and that you will think through what needs to adjust and change for this type of lifestyle to become real and to become an everyday occurrence in life right here, right now, for you, for me. May I tell you one more story? The same young apostle, traveling through the various nations where he ministers, writes, before I even arrived at the first stop of my planned Southeast Asia tour, <clears throat> I received an email from a European doctor living and working on the border of two Central Asian countries, countries that were experiencing a great deal of violence and unrest. The words of his email were guarded and carefully worded. The message read, Dr. So-and-so, I've heard about the research that you're doing from a friend a friend I knew and worked closely with in Somalia some years ago. I believe that the Lord needs you to come to and name that specific country, and he names his border town within his country. Well, my wife had already booked and purchased my plane tickets for the entire tightly scheduled trip. I responded to the man's email, explaining that my itinerary included not only Vietnam and Thailand, but also Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. Then I explained further, these are the last of the countries that I have already made plans to visit this year. I'm not expecting to be in your region late next year. I am expecting to be in your region late next year, so please be patient. I will be sure to get back in touch with you, and I will gladly consider your invitation at that time. After another stop to see the killing fields of Cambodia, where very few believers survived the Khmer Rouge reign of terror, I landed in Bangkok. From there I went up and stayed for a time among the Karen people, living in the Golden Triangle region between Thailand's borders, where the borders meet the borders of Laos. Then I attempted to travel to what was once Burma, now Myanmar. Several days later, I came back to Bangkok, where I had another email from the same doctor. The second email was more insistent. I really think you should come now, the man wrote. At that point, I responded with a slightly less gracious reply. I am sorry, but I will not come your way until next year. 
At that point, I set out for another country on my itinerary. Just before arriving there, however, I received a phone call informing me that all 18 pastors that I had lined up for interviews there had been arrested and were currently in jail. My primary contact in that country said, this will not be a good time for you to visit us unless you want to stay a lot longer than you had planned. I certainly wanted to visit that country, but I had no interest in spending time in prison. I wondered about the strange turn of events. Even more, I wondered if maybe it was some sort of a sign. I changed my plans immediately and returned to Bangkok. I'm not sure if I was really surprised or not, but I received another email from the same annoying, persistent doctor. This time I replied even more bluntly. Didn't want to make, didn't want to sound rude, but I was confident in the plans that I had made. In effect, I said to him, please stop asking me to visit. I am not coming to your country at this time. A few days later, I prepared to leave Bangkok on my next destination. After leaving Bangkok and before I reached my next stop, however, I received a phone call from an in-country contact. This phone call informed me that some of the pastors who were planning to talk with me had been in an automobile accident. Several others were sick in the hospital and even others were under tight surveillance. I'm sorry, I was told, but this is no longer a good time for you to visit. We will contact you to let you know when you might try again. So, once again, I returned to Bangkok. Arriving there, I was startled to find yet another email from the European doctor. Again, he insisted strongly, I believe God wants you to come here right now. Given the recent events and the apparent closed doors that I was facing, I was suddenly more open to his request. So I broke down, swallowed my pride, and called the doctor. After introducing myself, I sheepishly admitted, it suddenly looks like I really don't have anything else to do for the next couple of weeks. I guess I'll be coming your way after all. So I flew into the capital city of his country, then traveled on to a smaller city. From there I took a smaller plane which landed on a short dirt runway outside a small border town. As soon as I exited the airplane, I spotted a man who was obviously the doctor. Standing beside him were five men in traditional Muslim dress, who also seemed to be waiting at the remote desert airstrip for my plane to land. As the doctor and I exchanged greetings, I asked him, Who are your friends? You don't know who they are? He reacted in surprise. No, I don't even know who you were until 30 seconds ago, I told him. Well, he said, as he cast a glance over his shoulder, if you don't know these men, and I don't know these men, then we have a serious security problem. They told me that they had come to meet you. So, he continued rather abruptly, I'm going to leave you now. Here's my cell phone number. If, anything turns, if everything turns out all right, call me, and I'll come back and get you. Then he turned and walked away. I was stunned, and it dawned on me that I was already praying. I felt that I was self-trained in being careful in the midst of danger, so there was no way that I was going to leave with these five men. 
As I dragged my bag towards a small terminal, I was again thinking about how quickly I could catch a flight out. The men followed me. They tugged at my clothes, trying to get me to stop. I tried my best to ignore them. Finally, one of them said in broken English, Sir, stop. Please stop. We are followers of Jesus. I immediately stopped and turned to listen to what they had to say. The quick summary of their story rang true. Against my better judgment, but sensing the hand of God on our meeting, I went with my five unnamed new friends to a room that they had rented in the nearby town. When we got there, we sat down together on the floor in an unfurnished apartment. They simply looked at me and smiled. They seemed perfectly content to wait. I had no idea what was expected of me. I shared briefly about myself, though my words were more guarded than usual. I talked a little about where I had been, how I had been traveling around the world, the research that I had done, and why I, why I wanted to talk to believers in different parts of the world. I even speculated a little on why I had ended up in this tiny corner of the world. One of the men spoke English. He translated my words to the others, and after he finished, all five of the men began to laugh. I was confused, and I wanted to know what they thought was so funny. They shook their heads, smiled, and said to me, You may think you know why you have come here, but we would like to tell you why you are really here. They briefly sketched out their own personal stories. They had each had dreams or visions that had raised spiritual questions and prompted a long search for answers. They had each miraculously found a copy of the Bible to study. After reading the entire book several times, they had each, on their own, decided to follow Jesus. They had each been rejected and disowned by their families. Eventually, each one of them had to flee their country, and each one of them made their way across the border to this small border town. Somehow, they found each other, and they realized that they all shared the same newfound faith in Christ. They didn't really know what to do next, but they instinctively started meeting in this tiny third-floor apartment. They met daily from midnight until three in the morning, hoping that no one would notice them. They read the Word of God secretly and tried to provide spiritual support and encouragement for one another. Two months earlier, they explained, they had started praying this prayer. Oh God, we don't know how to do this. We grew up and were trained as Muslims. We know how to be Muslims in a Muslim environment. We even know how to be communist in a Muslim environment. But we do not know how to follow Jesus in a Muslim environment. Please, Lord, send us someone. Send us someone who knows about persecution. Someone who knows what other believers are doing. Someone who can encourage and teach us. Chills were running up and down my spine as they explained what had happened when they had been together in the same rented upper room earlier in the day. At 1.30 this morning, we were here praying when the Holy Spirit told us to go to the airport. The Holy Spirit told us that we were to go to the first white man who got off the plane, and the Holy Spirit told us that he was sending this man to answer our questions. So, 
they said as they smiled at me again. That is why you are here. Now you can do what God has called you here to do. Before you start teaching us, however, we have one other question for you. Where have you been, and what have you been doing for these last two months? We started to pray for someone to show up two months ago, and only now are you here. I shook my head in embarrassment. I confessed, well, I guess I have been being disobedient. I tried my best for weeks not to come here at all. Please forgive me. And they did. And we had a great time of teaching and learning from each other over the next few days. I listened to each of their personal testimonies of faith, asked them specific questions about the details of how and when they encountered Jesus and became his followers. One of the five men told me, I dreamed about a blue book. I was driven, consumed really, by the message of the dream. Look for this book, the dream said. Read this book, the Bible. I began a search, and I could not find a book like that anywhere in my country. Then one day, I walked into a bookshop in an Islamic center and saw this sea of green books lining the walls. I noticed a book of a different color on a shelf at the back of the store. So I walked back there and pulled out a thick blue volume to discover that it was a Bible. It was published in my own national language. I also bought a Bible in an Islamic, Islamic bookstore, took it home, read it five times, and that's how I came to know Jesus. Another one told me, I dreamed about finding Jesus, but I didn't even know how or where to look. Then one day I was walking through the market when a man I had never seen before came up to me in the crowd. He said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you this book. And he handed me a Bible and disappeared into the crowd. I never saw him again. But I read the Bible he gave me three times from cover to cover. And that's how I came to know and follow Jesus. Each one of the five men told me a different variation of the same story. Each one of them had come across a Bible in some unusual, miraculous way. Each one had read the gospel story of Jesus, and each one of them had decided to follow him. After hearing their stories, I felt drawn to open the book of Acts. With an entirely different point of view, I began to read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. For the first time in my life, as I read that passage, I wondered, how in the world did an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a man of color, and a foreigner get a copy of a scroll containing the book of Isaiah? In New Testament days, even partial copies of scripture were handwritten on scrolls. They were very rare and very expensive. What's more, the Jews had strict rules and restrictions about who was even allowed to touch the Holy Scriptures and where the scriptures could be opened and read. By all accounts, this Ethiopian official would not have been allowed to touch a copy of scripture, or open it, and read it, or possess it. Yet Philip finds this Ethiopian man in a chariot on a desert road in Gaza, poring and puzzling over Isaiah 53. When I read the story of this night, the fact that the Ethiopian official was actually going home with a copy of a portion of the Jewish Bible 
seemed extraordinary and unlikely. In fact, it was so extraordinary and unlikely that I blurted out a question. Where did this man get a copy of your word? In reply, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. I have been doing this for a long time. If you will take my word out into the world, I will get it into the right hands. What a marvelous, miraculous, and mysterious partnership this is. We have no clear understanding of what sent official, that official of the Ethiopian queen on a spiritual pilgrimage to Israel. Something or someone did. How did that man miraculously get his hands on that part of the Word of God? And why was he on the empty stretch of desert road at that very moment, reading that particular chapter of Isaiah? Of course, we know how Philip ended up there. The Holy Spirit sent him. I had to admit that I did not know the answer to any of those questions. Yet now, after being among believers in persecution, I was pretty sure that God must have had to work a number of small miracles for that encounter between the Ethiopian man and Philip to take place. In God's miraculous timing, this encounter happened in exactly the right place and exactly the right time. Almost 2,000 years later, the same thing had happened when I walked off of a plane to meet five Muslim men who had miraculously found Jesus. I had never intended to be an answer to prayer that day, but evidently I was. Reading from the book of Acts that evening was a complete new experience. Two thoughts stayed in my mind. This is what God did then, and this is what God does now. Suddenly, my modern world didn't look all that different than the world of the Bible. Much, much later, after years of gathering stories, I came to understand that the tales told by these five new friends were actually pretty commonplace. Time and again in the years since, Muslim background believers from many different countries and cultures have told me about being directed by dreams and visions. They have told me about finding Bibles through amazing circumstances. They have mentioned reading the Bible multiple times. In the reading, they have talked about feeling drawn to Jesus. They have told me of a personal decision to follow him. Many of those pilgrimages to faith involved a Philip, who miraculously showed up at exactly the right time in the right place with the right words that finally pointed the seeker directly to Jesus. So as I personally thought about all of this, struggling with the feelings inside my gut as I read these and multiple other stories, I wonder why God's hand is not as evident in my life. Why does it seem that God does amazing things over there but not here? Why does he seem more active in the life of believers in the third world nations? What is it that I need to change or adjust so that he is free to work in and through my life in ways that are more evident and now. After all, God is no respecter of persons, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever.